Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Property Finance Podcast. Today I'm very lucky to be joined by Emmanuel Ezekiel, who is the author of The Six Steps to Financial Freedom, which has been endorsed by Bill Bartman and Brian Tracy. He's also an international public speaker, finance director and acquisitions director for Broadwing Homes and is responsible for educating tens of thousands of people on how to treat their finances and how to educate them around their finances. Would you like to elaborate more on that? Yeah, my, my main goal is to help people raise their financial IQ. Um, a, about 10, 15 years ago, I had a mortgage business. I had about 50 brokers uh, working for me all around uh, the UK. And the main problem that I had was that we would help people get out of debt. And every two or three years after their fixed or discounted rate had uh, terminated, they'd just replace the debt that we'd replaced with new debt. And I thought, this is crazy. People are just taking out a mortgage for another 25 years, increasing the term, and not knowing how to get out of debt. And what's even worse, they would take a car loan that they bought for two, three, four years that they wouldn't have dreamt about at the, that moment in time purchasing it, taking out for a 25-year loan, and all of a sudden they're adding it to the mortgage. We're now taking a debt from four years down to 20, over to 25 years, which is just seemed crazy. So... I spent a lot of time understanding finances uh, and more importantly how lenders work and I created a formula and the formula was to show anybody how to get out of debt as fast as possible just using their existing income but using it in a different way. Fantastic. So we'll, we'll come back to the book in a minute because I think obviously that is uh, a very important uh, piece of your history if you like um, and the legacy that you're, you're in the process of leaving. So just coming back to the, the mortgage business. Um, so what made you decide to get into mortgages? And actually, from that point, uh, how did you go about growing to a, a brokerage of well, 50 brokers? It's quite a substantial brokerage. So that's a really good question. So in my previous life, I used to have a franchise for a company called Sharp's Bedrooms, which is a furniture business. And my franchise was coming to an end. And I wanted to find a, another business that didn't actually have stock or having to work in people's homes. Uh, in the same way as actually having furniture there. So I was very lucky that I was approached um, at that same time by a couple of people that were bringing over a new mortgage concept to the UK. And at the time, all, nearly all mortgages in the UK were calculated annually in arrears. So it meant any mortgage payment that you made wouldn't be credited to your mortgage account until the end of 12 months. However, there was a company that came over from Australia, and at the time they were called First Active Mortgages, that changed all of that. And that's how mortgages now calculated today, was on a daily rate of interest. And what that actually meant is every time you made a payment to your mortgage, immediately your mortgage balance was actually reduced. And they had something else added to that mortgage, what was called a current account mortgage. And they also had a calculator linked to that called a current account mortgage calculator. And the reason that was so pivotal is I spent six weeks, eight hours a day, understanding that calculator to manipulate any mortgage to make sure you paid the least amount of interest and paid off your mortgage as fast as possible. And I became the expert in this country on that calculator. I would make tens of thousands of pounds saving to the average person within five or ten minutes just by playing around with their mortgage and their income and their savings. So on the back of that, because it was so unique and at the same time, you know when things just get all lined up together? Yep. 
the BBC on Watchdog did a programme that talked about how much people were losing by paying mortgages on an annual rate of interest and how they should be looking at daily interest. And I used that video clip uh, to actually build a business because you can't get any more endorsement at the time than BBC Watchdog saying that this is the kind of mortgage that you need to have to pay the least amount of interest. So everything just seemed to uh, follow suit. And then just recruiting one person after another in different areas allowed us to do that. So we were very lucky at the time. There was no mortgage regulation like there is now. We had a telesales department. We'd ring up people, ask them if they had a mortgage, which you can't do now. No. Uh, we could ring them up. We'd ask them, we'd make an appointment, we'd go and see them. After two or three visits, we'd actually work out what's the best way we could actually help that person. So things were different then. Um, and that's how I was able to actually create the business. Uh, and on the back of that, help people because as I said after every two or three years people come back with the debt and I wanted to change that I wanted to educate people and raise the financial IQ and that's why I'm so passionate about that particular area okay so two questions just off the back of that so the, the first one is approximately how much do you think you saved people on their mortgages over the time that you're a mortgage broker uh, that's really hard to say. What I will say is that the average person will save twenty to twenty-five thousand pounds worth of interest in their mortgage. Wow! And I've helped thousands and thousands of people, and still help them based on the book, and then actually copying and yeah. adapting the formula. And more importantly, I wrote the book as if a ten or eleven-year-old was reading it, so it can play in English. Because most finance books are boring, and they're very hard yeah. to understand. So I wanted to create something that anybody can pick up and understand and put in a process that happens automatically. Okay. And the second question is, so you, you obviously the mortgage brokerage is massive. You are obviously doing very well off the back of it. What was the sort of exit point for you? What made you realise that either you wanted to come out or not necessarily come out of it? Were you offered an exit out of it? Or how did you exit that? Because obviously you're not a mortgage broker anymore. So, so, so the exit process happened for me. Uh, and it happened for me because circumstances changed in 2008, 2009, when regulation changed. Yeah. Uh, we could no longer call people, cold calling, so the cost of acquisition of our clients. So the whole demise at the same time meant that they, the business just basically trailed away. Um, so it was, it was a, a forced exit okay. at the time. So you've, you've come to that point where you've had, unfortunately, as many people did in 2007, 2008, had a forced exit out of something you're very passionate about. So at that point, what have you then moved into? Is it at that point that you've then decided that you want to get into property full-time? Or what, what was the transition? Because obviously now, as we know you, you are now sort of have many different uh, things, but your, your main thing is obviously educating people on financial freedom, but also uh, being the finance director and acquisitions director for Broadwing, which is obviously gathering pace rather rapidly. But obviously there's that, that middle gap of about 10 years that it'd be interesting to understand yeah, so, so during that period of time, I'd, I'd already started my journey on, on buy-to-let, becoming a landlord on a yep. buy-to-let portfolio. Uh, and like most um, uneducated landlords and investors, I did what most of us do, is I used all my money and ran out of it quickly. I'd bought a couple of properties. However, I knew a number of people that were still buying property, and they were saying at the time they wasn't using their money. So I learned over a period of time when people, oh, they didn't say, let me rephrase that. They said they, they were buying either no money down 
or none of their own money. So I wanted to learn how is that possible. Now, things have changed over a period of time, but then it was much easier to buy property, and typically you could actually buy a property at a discount or below market value, hypothetically, buy a property that's worth 100,000, somebody needed to sell because they were going through divorce or some of these circumstances. Yep. It was worth, you could purchase it for maybe 70,000, you could buy it on a bridge in the morning for 70,000, and you could remortgage the same day with people like Mortgage Express at 100,000 and actually have no money of your own money into the deal. So times were easier then, and there was yep. a few other principles that I learned during the process that allowed me to continue to do that. And obviously having a mortgage brokerages and understanding the lenders underwriting their criteria made it easy for me to continue to do that. So during the period that I'd say between sort of 2008 to 2011 was what I would call consolidation of the different developments I had at the time. I had Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS at the time, trying to what they call foreclose or try and take back some of the developments. So I was able to manage that process again because I understood debt, I understood the yeah. law regarding that, and I had the right professionals that stopped that from happening. So I was able to take what I call a sabbatical during that period of time, reassess, lay down new foundations, and then start again. Okay. And so from sort of 2011 to 2018, that's where you've gone through your period of growth, as you would call it. Um, so we, we've we hit 2018. You've decided to to sort of join forces with uh, the other guys for Broadwing. So there's a lot of questions around that. So the first one is, uh, and I've experienced it myself, uh, is it's, it's never easy to find good JV partners. Um, and we a lot of people have had negative experiences around that. So how have you gone through the process of finding good JV partners? Because at the minute from the external, it looks like you guys have found a very good partnership between the three of you and you seem to go from strength to strength to strength um, and yeah it would be good to understand how you've you've done that really well the Broadwing story is quite an interesting story so I'll go back to how it originally started yeah, please do um, Carl one of one of the, the, the directors at Broadwing home was actually running a charity event to do after his mother passing yep uh, and he in, uh, asked for different people to come in and speak to actually give just free information, value. Yeah. Well, both of us spoke at that event. <laughs> that's when we first yeah. met. So that, that's, the, the, that's the first time I met Carl. Uh, and he asked me to come and speak at that event where we both spoke. Yeah. Um, and it was just about giving back. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't speak to Carl really till a few months after that. Uh, and I saw a post on Facebook that he was doing an investor evening and asked if I could attend. I went to attend, I listened to the different projects that he was involved in at the time, uh, on purely on an investor basis to how I could invest my money. So I don't like just do my own developments, I like to invest through other people. If the, if the project seems um, like it's good, it's gonna be profitable. However, um, with the project they were offering, one, it wasn't in the right area, and two, I didn't think they'd covered enough points within their prospectus. I didn't think there was enough protection and enough thought. Uh, so I met with Carl separately um, and they had one or two deals that they were looking at, asked me to finance it. Again, I looked at it because of my, my knowledge and my experience. So good experience comes from bad experience. So as yep. a developer, I've had a few of those over my time, uh, just really to help and guide them. And so I gave them some information and I said, if the right deal comes along, I'd like to invest with them. Um, then it just so happened a few weeks later, I was just about to travel to the Far East 
a really good deal came along uh, that for one reason or another I wasn't uh, allowed to participate in that deal. I offered the deal to, to Carl and to Ben at the time and just the whole mechanics of working and, and the, the dialogue that we were having between the Far East and myself during that period of time, there seemed to be a lot of synergy. Uh, and then Ben and Carl asked me if I would join Broadwing uh, to bolster their ranks and to help on the finance and acquisitions. Uh, they both had the qualities and the values that I like and respect. They have different skill sets to me, completely different skill sets. So it's having that balance between having the right values, the ethos and the skill set. Um, and like most things, you know, probably <clears throat> You've got to kiss a few frogs before you find a prince, yep. uh, unless you're Meghan Markle, and then you actually have to kiss a prince and make him into a frog. But other than that, uh, that, that that's a process you need to go through. It's, it's trial and error. Yeah. And how long would you say it was between so meeting Carl for that first time and then actually officially becoming part of the Broadwing ranks? I would say it was well over a year. Wow, okay. After meeting Carl. Um, and there was dialogue for most of that, that the, year? The, the, there was some dialogue during that period of time, but it really accelerated uh, from when I went to the Far East, which was, I think, in the July. Okay. And by the time, I, I, I tend to go for quite a long period of time. I'd like to, you know, part of my, my ethos is health and fitness, so I yep. go to the Far East as a kickstart maybe once or twice a year. But during that period, I think that was a three or four week period, Okay. It became very apparent that we had a lot of synergy, a lot of strengths that we could actually uh, bring together. Okay. And do you naturally, I assume, you, you believe that had that been a much shorter period of time that you'd maybe gotten into business together? So maybe had you met Carl and then tried to go into business together straight away, do you feel like maybe it wouldn't have had the same effect? So what I'm asking there is nothing to do with do you think it would have been any different sort of the situation with Carl, but did having that longer period of time help? Because I, what I find with JVs is the ones that you rush into tend to be the ones that just fall apart the so, quickest. So the answer is yes. The time factor is really important. Yeah. And, and in most relationships, especially business, you need to know somebody, you need to like somebody, you need to trust somebody. You know, knowing somebody, you just don't know them the first time you meet them. You know, like them, you can like them straight away, but you need to see them in different environments to know whether you still yeah. like them and trust somebody, takes a period of time to see how they work, what they do. Yeah. So time definitely is something that's really important, and you shouldn't rush into joint ventures. No, definitely not. So the three of you are now together as Broadwing, so just talk us through some of the deals that, that you've done already, some of the deals that you're looking at, because uh, I think it'd be, be good for people to understand sort of where Broadwing uh, is going, because people have heard from Carl's side, obviously he did an episode recently, um, but it'd be good to know from your side where where has Broadwing been? Where is it going? What what are the aspirations for that moving forward? Okay, so so Broadwing is still what I call a, a an infant company. It's in its infancy. We've yep. only been going sort of two and a half year, two and a half three years as such. I've been with Broadwing probably coming up to maybe two years right now. Um, and in terms of the projects, we've got a few different projects. So um, Ben is based um, sort of Greenwich Way. I'm yep. based North London, sort of St Albans, Radbert Way. Carl is based in Peterborough, so we're looking at regions where any one of us can get there within half an hour to sort of 45 minutes. So we've got a couple of projects in Peterborough, and obviously Carl's on that doorstep, so he's yep. currently looking after that. We have one being built at the moment in Purley Croydon, which is a nine-unit scheme. 
We have another unit being built in um, Acton, again with another nine unit scheme, quite a tricky build. Um, no project ever goes 100% to plan with a no. time budget. So that's why you know the finance side is so important, making sure you really understand the numbers to allow yeah. for, for movement. So we've got a few projects in build right now. I've just finished uh, one of my projects before um, I joined Broadwing, which is in, in Felixstowe. It's a nursing home okay. converted into eight flats. And we've got three other schemes in planning right now, two in Purley. Uh, two more nine-unit schemes. There's another scheme that we're looking at just off Commercial Street, which is a 14-unit scheme. Uh, and all of those schemes are coming through either relationships or introductions. Okay. And you've just mentioned there a lot of nine-unit schemes and 14 units, relatively small developments, really, so SME-sized uh, developments. Is there a particular reason why you're keeping them at that size at the minute, or is it just a case of... You really don't want to take on anything much bigger at the minute until you've built up that track record. No, there's definitely a thought process behind it, and there's, there's namely quite a few. First and foremost, nine-unit scheme is below social housing, mostly yeah. in in London. Secondly, it's all within the help to buy sector. It means it's easier to sell, easier to market, and lenders will tell you it's not help to buy. It's actually called help to sell. Yeah. So they like that. It's easier to get funding. It means if we want to keep the units at the end, which we will keep quite a few of them, it makes it easier to actually refinance and keep it as part of our portfolio. They're much more easier to manage. The time frame to actually build and get in and out is much shorter. Uh, less risk. I'm all about de-risking. Perfect. So would you say for people who are looking at getting into developments, that that is the perfect way of getting in, is to keep them small, quick developments, rather than what we see a lot of at the minute is people trying to jump in on 20, 30 unit schemes. You you think for the first time developer or the, the infant developer, keep it small, quick, in and out jobs. So if you've never done development before, I would probably steer you clear of development. It's it probably the hardest discipline in all property strategies. So what I would suggest if you're going to get in development and you really want to, do it with somebody that already has a great track record, has done many developments, profitable developments, delivering in budget. That's really important. What I would say, if you want to get into development, cut your teeth on smaller schemes, Yeah. like quick conversions. They're much easier. Anything that you build from the ground upwards is an unknown. So yes, you can be successful in doing it, but it's a really difficult discipline to do. So I would, I would, from my own experience, I would say that if you're going to get into development, do it with somebody that already has that knowledge and that expertise. Even if you don't make any money, just you sit alongside them and just learn the disciplines. If I show you one of our Dropbox folders with all the contents in every single area that you need for development, you'd probably you'd run scare a mile. most people. You'd yeah. run a mile. So in terms of so coming back to that, so your what is your appraisal process at the minute? for each development because obviously you must appraise a lot more than you obviously have underway at the minute uh, because naturally it's a percentages game you've got to offer on x amount to then or you've got to appraise x amount to offer on x amount to then be able to actually purchase x amount and those percentages obviously get smaller and smaller as you get through uh, that process so what, what is your appraisal process at the minute in order to to get from that appraisal to then being in a position to put an offer forward so we do appraise a lot of deals um, I've created a, an appraisal uh, desktop 
um, spreadsheet that tells me within 15 seconds. Obviously, I'm, I like to play with formulas and, and calculators, whether it's even worth taking to the next step. Okay. And it's based purely on the basic information that we get from the agent or the sourcing agent, the information. Yeah. One is, what's the asking price? Yep. Two, what they're telling us the GDV is. Three is the square footage. And based on the area, we'll know roughly what the bill costs are. Yeah. It will throw out the margin of what we need as a minimum. I mean, minimum of 20%. We're looking more now in the current marketplace. So is that 20% of cost or 20% of GDV that you're putting 20% of GDV. Um, and it's got to have that as a minimum. If it doesn't show that, we don't even look at it any further. If it's showing 15, 60%, we won't even look at it. It's got to be within that parameters to start with. Um, so if it's hitting 15, 16, literally it's straight in the bin, you don't try and negotiate on it or anything like that. No, it's, uh, no I'll, it's I'll tell you why. Um, from my experience, the information that we get from agents, invariably, the asking price for the land is too high. Yep. The GDV is inflated, inflated <laughs> yeah. and the bill cost is under-costed. Yeah. So if you take those three things and you're, and you're ready at a 15% margin, when you actually do your proper appraisal, you're going to have another it's 5%, going it's going to be about 10%. So it's not worth the time and effort. The, the good sourcing agents will actually give you the right information, the right yeah. values for us to then go and verify it. Okay. And what happens, so let's say something's hit 20% at that point, where do you do you then take it? Is that the point where you actually look into it in a bit more detail, start to cost things, start yeah, to come so, up with so a price? We have a very, very detailed spreadsheet which we keep adding, adding to. Okay. Because um, there's a lot of costs that most developers miss. Yeah. Um, when they do a basic appraisal, they look at the purchase price, they look at the GDV, they look at the bill cost. Yeah. They well, forget the finance cost, they forget the contingency, they forget the section they, they 106, they forget, they forget all the stamp duty, they forget yeah. the legal fees, they forget Valuation you know, fees, NHBC, surveyor fees. They professional fees. Yeah. You know, professional fees on our average development, small development, is between one hundred and fifty and two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah. If you take that as a percentage of the total bill cost, it's a huge amount. So yeah. most small developers miss between fifteen and twenty percent of true and actual cost, including the exit fees. You know, when you sell, you still got the agent to pay. You still got the leases to create. You've still got marketing. There's lots of the things. The lender might have an exit fee, yeah. Correct. So, our appraise is a lot of detail, and then we do the research. So we do put all the okay. information, in, and then we'll go and research and just find out are, are the values they're giving us correct? Because a one-bedroom flat per square foot, a two-bedroom flat, three-bedroom flat will all have a different price per square foot. What's yeah. the optimum size? You know, we've looked at schemes where they've given us price per square foot. They've all been three-bedroom units. There's no demand for three-bedroom unit in the area. Okay. So it, it's, it, the devil is in the detail. Definitely. So at that point, it's gone through that second spreadsheet. That's where you then got an offer price. And that's, that's the figure you then put forward to the vendor, I assume. Yeah. So we'll, we'll work on a number. I'm quite creative in terms of how I structure a deal. There's many ways to look at it to give the same outcome. But yes, we'll put an offer and we'll put multiple offers. And I would say probably for every hundred deals that we do, we'll probably only go further with about two or three. And maybe wow. only complete on one for lots of different reasons yeah you know lending criteria yeah location time we have limited amount of funds we've already secured a deal we can't go with another so you know we, we're not a developer that can buy everything that comes our way no that we'll buy the stuff that we feel that we can actually make a profit <laughs> yeah. on okay so you in terms of 
the broad we've gone through sort of your your appraisal process obviously you're starting to pick up more and more sites starting to build up uh, more of a pipeline just a, a couple of last questions on Broadwing then so in terms of obviously the deals that are being brought to you what do you look for in a sourcing engine because a lot of the people who potentially are listening to this are potentially sourcers or their land agents or something like that and, and not everyone knows how to present a deal so when you're being presented a deal what what do you want to see from someone who's presenting you a deal? So I do have some very good sources and the good sources actually provide information to make it easy for me to appraise it. So they will have done some research in terms of, if, if it's a mixed scheme development, they'll have done some research to show me what prices are selling for currently, not a year ago, two years ago, yeah. currently in the marketplace, price per square foot, they'd have, they'd have, they'd have sent me the comparables, they'd have um, given me a proper GDV, they'll have yeah. done some part of the equation that we give them to do as part of the the, the information we need. They'll give us the planning links, they'll give us the, okay. the, the plans. So, you know, just seeing a scheme without actually understanding the basic details of how is the mechanics of it, you know, is it easy access? What about the search? So we need the information to allow us to evaluate it. Okay. So really, it's just a case of you want sourcing agents and land agents to actually bring you a deal that you don't have to spend hours doing all of the research on yourself realistically Correct. okay so in terms of broadwing um obviously everyone has a and i i'm sure that you are definitely not different have a long-term plan for what they're going to do in terms of companies that they set up so what is the the long-term plan for broadwing at the minute or is it, it it's still in its infancy so maybe you haven't thought that well that far ahead. The, the goal for broadwing right from the outset is we want to build quality affordable homes so we want people to have a home that they wouldn't necessarily have to pay a lot more with the specification that we provide with the people and the contacts that we have at a much more affordable price secondly we want to have multiple schemes yeah you know we want to be having between 10 and 20 million being built at any moment in time so currently we've probably got in the region of around about 15 million being built okay uh, and that's our, our, our aim we want to stay a size that we can actually know and grow slowly there's so many people in our industry that run before yeah. they can walk you know you you know the, literally in the, in the last year or so you and i know a number of people that they've blown their own trumpet they've said how big they are and what they've got and really it's, it's a house of cards yeah uh, we're, we're not in that um we're just not in that in that marketplace we want to no. do what we say and do it easily slowly and build slowly that's how you build slowly yeah perfect so the in terms of your exit in terms of, of broadwing is there a plan to ever exit it or is it a case of you'll just grow it to be almost a, a pension fund for the three of you and then leave it be or is it a plan to because i i know of developers who have maybe their third tier developer or a third generation developers sorry who have what big development companies sold it for multi-million pounds and then gone off and sat on the Bahamas and just just enjoyed retirement and I know it's very difficult to say but in terms of so for anyone who's listening to this who's thinking of doing the same thing building up a development company slowly what, what's your aim for the end of it so I think our aim is as a company to continue developing continue okay. building also at the same time to continue adding to our portfolio and at the same time also to fund other small developers that need the finance, that need the knowledge and education 
once we have the capital resources to, to do that. And we will invest in people that have the knowledge and the time, but not necessarily the finances. Perfect. Okay, so the long-term plan is to retain it and just essentially give back is what Correct. you're looking to do. Perfect. So that leads us nicely on to coming back to your book. So talk us through, obviously we, we did a very a brief introduction of the book earlier, but talk, talk to us in a bit more detail about the book and I'd be interested to know the process behind how, like you said, finance isn't for everyone. Not everyone finds finance interesting. And like you said, you've written this to be in plain English, but in terms of your process, how do you sit down and write a 240-page book on financial freedom? Um, yeah, it'd just be interesting to know how you went about that. So there's different stages to come to finance. So first is, is realisation. If you don't realise how you're being screwed, you're not going to be angry about it to want to do something about it. So the first part is making people realise how the financial system works against you yep. and how the banks make money. So I, 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 the first thing I started with is showing people to understand how money truly works so they get angry. You know, people do more to avoid pain than to gain pleasure. So I, I often give this example. If the bank is borrowing money or getting money on the money market at 1% and they charge a mortgage of 4%. The average answer, if you say to the average person, how much money, what is the bank making? The average answer is 3%. And while that might be true on one level, it's completely untrue. The bank is actually making 300%. So if you were to get a 300% return on your money, would you like that? The answer is great. Now, yeah. if you go from a mortgage to a bank loan that's 9 or 10% and they're buying money at 1%, they're now making 900%. And if you put it onto a credit card where it's 20% and so forth, you can see, see how much money the, the bank is making from you. And it's even worse because when you put your money in the bank and you've got getting 0.1% and they're then leveraging your money, you can see how much money they're making. And then it goes in one stage further. For every pound the bank has on deposit, they can lend nine times that ratio. So just think about this. You deposit £1,000 in the bank, they can now lend £9,000 because that's the law in this country and most uh, European countries that they can leverage nine times. They, you then take that £9,000 and you deposit with the next bank. Guess what? They can now leverage that 9000 times nine and so on and so forth. So, so money is quite fictitious. However, if you actually know how compound interest works, now Albert Einstein said one of the greatest things he's ever seen in the world is compounded effect, the compound effect of interest. Why would one of the, the, the cleverest men ever to exist in this world say that? Because it really is true. So what I've tried to do is create this compounded effect on your mortgage and reverse it compared to what the lenders do. So. The first part is getting you angry to understand just how much money is being elicited from you. The second part is to change the way that we think and that we act. We live in a world, especially now with the internet and the TV, where people want to keep up with the Joneses, with their houses, with their cars, with their holidays. So it's about re-simplifying your life. I said I come from you know quite a humble background and understanding that money isn't that important, but simplifying your life where you don't have these debts where you're having to work to pay for your mortgage, for your car loan. You know, most people are working six or seven months of the year just to pay the government taxes and to pay for loans 
without actually so I wanted to change that effect because the truth is you're much better off having disposable income when you're 45 and 50 than when you're 65 or 70 when you're too old to actually enjoy it so I wanted to create new freedoms for people okay so in terms of that from what you've said you're very passionate about very passionate um so actually writing 240 pages actually probably wasn't that difficult because I suppose when you actually get into it and like you said once you get into all these different nuances of what's occurring I, I assume that was a fairly easy write yeah well a couple of bits to that so first and foremost 240 pages I, I wrote it so a 10 or 11 year old could understand yeah. it so first and foremost the writing is quite big Secondly, I can confirm the writing is quite big. <laughs> secondly, there's quite a lot of diagrams and there's a lot of motivational quotes in there. Yeah. So it allows it and there's some, some exercises that you have to go through. So although it might appear quite a big book, it's a very easy book. And yeah. Most people can actually get through the book in one, one sitting. Fantastic. Okay, so coming off the book then. So you've educated tens of thousands of people as to how to make themselves uh, more financially aware and like you said raise their financial IQ so coming off the back of that obviously your uh, presence your reputation within the community is rising and rising and rising and rising and that has now been met with your appearance on Rich House Poor House which obviously we're going to mention because how can we not so just talk us through that how how your approach with it your thought process for that as well because Obviously, like you said at the time, it's all in the editing. It can be quite nerve-wracking, actually, if, so, if you're approached with something like that, to think, well, how is that going to affect my reputation? Um, so just talk us through the, the process, and then I'll, I'll ask you about, actually, what's happened off the back of the show as well. So I, I was contacted by, by Channel 5 on the back of one of my book and the different uh, talks that I do. They saw a couple of videos on YouTube. Uh, in terms of what I do and they approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. Uh, I said I would be interested um, and I do have quite a few people in the, the TV industry uh, and one of them um, who's a very well-known presenter, I won't mention her name, um, I asked her about the company at the time and she said that they are a company that um, like to, to, to not... Um, over-exaggerate a situation so that they'd give it a true reflection. So I thought on that basis, I would probably like to do it. Okay. And did anyone at the time advise you not to do it? Or was it was everyone quite supportive of it? No, quite a few people said uh, we shouldn't do it. Um, my, my son was one of them at the time. Um, that, but he ultimately came on the show with me as well. Um, he didn't want to give up his home and stuff to start with. Uh, family and a few friends um, but I thought it was something that um, if it was done properly and the true essence that I wanted to do if the show reflected that then it would actually have a, a positive knock-on effect. Okay and off the back of it you've said that you were pleasantly surprised as to how it came across and obviously I think the the edit was great um, so the reception off the back of it obviously has been as you've said very positive um, so just talk us through some of the response that you've had well, to that. Well, as a parent, um, the, the feedback I've had from both of my children, uh, how they, they were, it, it, make, it makes me realise as, as both my, 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 ex my ex-wife and myself, we brought our children up with the correct values uh, and how to behave in the, you know, with somebody that's less fortunate than yourself. So that was really 
in fact, the most uh, positive thing that I actually got from it was actually the, the really amazing comments I had about my children. Fantastic. Uh, the other part was uh, obviously people that have known me in business to actually see me in a non-business environment yeah. and uh, that I'm, I'm not quite as bad as they thought I was. Yeah, and it's lovely to see, yeah, because we all know you from the business side, really. Um, and yeah, it's lovely to see that that real life version of you and yeah. it sounds silly in a way but yeah it's it's always good to have that so in terms of so coming on to the, the next question is about investors so obviously as Broadwing you're constantly approaching investors um, have you found that the show had a positive effect in terms of approaching investors or has it not really had an effect at all? I think that the show has shown um, ultimately that we that myself and people I'm involved with because Carl was on it as well yep that we are just genuinely nice, caring, thoughtful people. And it's um, helped with that no like, and trust that you, that you it, mentioned it's earlier. It's certainly helping with no like, and trust. Certainly um, no, because you get to see me like, ho hopefully people can associate with the kind of yeah. people that we are. Uh, and over time, I think that will actually have a knock-on be benefit that people want to do business with us. Brilliant. So in terms of approaching investors at the minute, what, how were you, because obviously last year we had a rather difficult year, obviously, with Brexit, the election. Uh, how did you find it approaching investors last year? Did you find it more difficult or is it business as usual? So I have a different ethos to most people when it comes to investors. So I don't like talking to investors about a specific deal. I think it's way too late. Yeah. I want to create the relationship well in advance so people have already committed to actually want to do business with you. And when you find the right deal that meets their criteria, it's just a simple step moving forward. Whereas most people tend to find the deal and then try and find the investor, and it's all panic stations. Uh, you feel desperate. So if we find a deal, often we'll buy it with our own money, and okay. then maybe then we'll, we'll, we'll try and find an investor or bridging, not necessarily bridging, but maybe Mez Finance or an equity partner. Okay, to come in and replace the money that you... Yeah, and, and again, there's another reason for doing that. It's cheaper. Yeah. You know, if you need an investor, you're going to pay much more. Definitely. When you don't need somebody... You're it's, it is much cheaper. So it's a different thought process and ethos. And I've learned that over time. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And obviously, you guys have surrounded yourselves with uh, a lot of great professionals. Obviously, we've seen a lot of the uh, CGIs and whatnot that have been put together for you guys by your architects and whatnot. And, and obviously, they've, they've helped in terms of putting out your visions. Um, obviously, with the investors, you, you do things slightly different in terms of running investor evenings which you've mentioned Carl does yeah so, so we, we have investor evenings when we talk about what we've got in the pipeline yeah we also talk about the projects that we've done and really to give the uh, an investor an opportunity to see who we are so they get to know us like us trust us yeah and the investor evening is all about that for them to know us like us to begin to trust us and if they want to have a conversation a dialogue after that we don't offer investments for people to invest when they come to investor evening no. it's purely for them to get to know us to see if they'd like to start building a relationship almost trying to hit one of those touch points yeah it's, it, it's all about relationship building you know I, I, i've got an investor now that's investing in me after i met and have had relationships for maybe three or four years now wow it doesn't happen overnight you no. know, these things take time to actually nurture okay and in terms of Obviously, now this year is is going to be much easier. Are you how are you Broadwing going forward for investment, going for lending, etc.? How are you finding the beginning of this year compared to last year? And are you quite 
hopeful, I guess, that this year is going to see obviously a bit more stability? Um, the, the answer is we don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. However, it's always about the numbers. Yeah. I can't emphasise it enough that if you have your numbers that are robust at the outset, it gives you the ability to move how the market moves. If the market goes downwards, you have enough margin to sustain it. If the market goes upwards, you make more profit. So, and you've got to have more than one exit strategy. Yes, definitely. So a lot of developers build to sell. If that is your only strategy, at some point, you're going to fall full short. So it, it, it really is the numbers. You know, yeah. doing your, your research, making sure you've, you've, you've ticked all, all the boxes, make sure does this investment stack up and don't overstretch yourself. Make sure you're comfortable within your numbers, within your figures, and you have enough money to, to be able to deliver. To deliver, because you will have, you will have problems along the way. I don't know any developer at any time that hasn't had a problem on nearly all of their projects somewhere along the line. Yeah, and I, I'm the same. I can't think of anyone who's not had an issue either in the raising of the finance or delivery of the project or exiting the project or, or whatever it and may and be. And if they're telling you otherwise, they're probably not quite telling you the, tr the full no, story. definitely not. Um, so before we wrap up then, so you've just started a podcast of your own as well. Um, so before we wrap up, do you want to give us a quick overview of what your podcast is about? Obviously, it's with Ashley and Jimmy. Um yeah, what's it about? Yeah, so I've set up two things. One is a podcast. I've been asked uh, through Ashley uh, Banfield and uh, Jimmy London, quite a good name. Yep. Uh, uh, Ashley is the, the, ma the main person with, with Wealth Success Academy. And it, it's really the straight-talking property podcast to give people the tips and the tricks and information to use where they don't have to go, ideally, always to a property seminar, run to the back of the room yeah. and get pay a huge amount of money. And just to help people understand... There are ways to participate in property, uh, and, and it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a get-rich-slowly scheme. But there are ways that you can increase your income, your cash flow, if you do things right. The other side that I'm doing, I've actually started to do some, some videos, um, and really to help people, one on their mindset, one on their finance, one on their health, uh, because property is not just about money. It's about lots of the different areas that allow you to propel to allow yourself to be Come successful. So, health is really key. If you're not healthy, nothing really matters. If you're not happy, then it doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, and the other part is contribution. Today is all about contribution, how we help other people. Yeah. And it's about how we grow and become better persons and better versions of ourselves. Fantastic. So, in terms of the videos, if people follow the Six Steps to Financial Freedom Facebook page, they can pick up. A lot pick of up the videos, newer videos. Th um, th there will be some videos just on my own name, Emmanuel Ezekiel, which is very difficult to spell because it's with an I and it's a, a difficult surname. But uh, I'm sure if they put something derivative, it'll come up so they can actually find me. Fantastic. Well, this has been brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. And yeah, very much looking forward to having you at the PPN as well. Uh, which actually, yeah, let's finish off with quickly what are people going to learn at the PPN? So at the PPN, they're going to learn a, a few games around about property, specifically around about numbers and about how to get over obstacles um, as well as mindset. It's going to be uh, a fun evening. Uh, I don't just talk, as I said, about property. I like to talk about other areas that links into property. So I think they'll find it quite entertaining. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.